Hello and welcome back to Trust Issues, a podcast from Kepler Trust Intelligence. Before introducing this week's guest, a couple of points. One is that this was recorded about two weeks before it's going out, so some of the figures may be a bit off, so please check those if if you're unsure about them. And the other one is your reminder that none of this should be construed as investment advice. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It is strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues, a podcast from Kepler Trust Intelligence. This week, I'm joined by Nick Greenwood. Nick is the manager of Mego Opportunities Trust, uh, which is an investment trust that invests in other investment trusts. So it's like a trust of trusts, if you can call it that. Uh, so, Nick, perhaps a, a broad question to get started with. Uh, why investment trust? Well, I mean, it's a peculiarly British thing, and it, they date back, um, they predate open-ended funds. But, I mean, the, the, the important point is that, unlike open-ended funds, the price you pay or receive depends on the equilibrium of buyers and sellers in the market. Uh, and that means on some, some occasions you can, you, can, you can find that the shares are trading at way above the value of the underlying portfolio, more often well below. Um, and we're basically looking for mispricings. We're trying to buy stuff at the wrong price, and... Um, um, where we can see a catalyst for change, and uh, you know, at the moment, I mean, investment trust discounts are, have been particularly wide in, in recent months. And uh, I think um, on our last presentation, the average discount in in in, in MIGO was about twenty eight percent, just taking the top twelve holdings. Um, so lots of opportunities. We're well, technically, we're a trust of trusts. Um, we absolutely are, but the, the reality is, we're a special situations investor. We're, we're seeing things that are un- misunderstood, they're unloved, and they're overlooked. And as I said before, we're just trying to buy them at the wrong price. Great. And so I think over the past 12 months or so, I, I know your, your colleague, Gervais Williams, has long thought that there's going to be a sort of sea change in markets um, with a big debt bubble coming to an end, which does, does seem to be happening. Mm. Um, so how do you think that will, do you think that that's going to cause some sort of change in the investment trust sector as well i mean i think you've you've said before i think that's always gone through changes in the past so maybe you could talk a bit about those and then what you think the future holds as well yeah i mean probably the changes first i mean the 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 sector has been in permanent evolution um you know i've been doing this for uh well since the late 70s which is uh which is um quite frightening but uh, I've, I've i've always been told that the investment trust is a dying sector but i think we're down to something like our last 42 billion because it keeps reinventing itself um you know when i first started it was more of an institutional market institutions used investment trust to get exposure to parts of the equity market they didn't do themselves then in the 2000s it was really the home of the private client stockbroker today it's evolving in two fronts the the, the ownership um is increasingly um Private individuals, self-directed investors are becoming much more interested in, in, in the sector. Um, and also the the, 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 the the expansion comes because the world is looking at alternative asset classes, um, you know, be that song rights or space or aircraft leasing or renewable energy. And those things are just very difficult to operate in, a, in, a, in an open-ended fund. You know, it's very difficult to sell an office block 
within 24 hours and and and, and meet a redemption and and you know we've seen the, what the problems are with illiquid asset classes being open-ended with the property funds because they always seem to have vast cash buffers on the way up you know so they're getting enormous cash drag um typically only maybe 20 percent in um in in cash and then when the markets start falling they very quickly get gated um so the, the the way around this is a closed-ended fund where people can come in and out um, via the market um, and they get a price and they know what the, the price is. It may not be a price that particularly appeals, but as the market and as as um, investors are looking more at these these alternative asset classes, we're seeing an enormous growth in in in, in what's available in the closed-ended sector. The second part of your question there was, um, you know, wh- where we see markets. I mean, we've 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 we had. A couple of years post the the COVID pandemic, where there was an enormous amount of cash pushed into the system, and um, we were very long in in in, in my go on, on 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 markets at that point. Um, what we're going to see now is that um, a general tightening, um, and therefore, as money is sucked out of the financial system, there's less cash sloshing around to support asset prices. So you should expect markets to be slightly backwards. Uh, I'm probably not as bearish as my colleague Gervais, but. Um, you don't particularly want to be too close to the indices because, you know, notwithstanding the fact they've we've had, we've had a few nice days, um, you know, the the, the 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 general tide is is against you. Yeah, you said you mentioned that you've been uh, doing this since the seventies, but a lot of managers in the investment trust space in, in the financial services mm. industry as a whole, mm. um, myself included, have mm. effectively only worked in an environment where mm. super low interest rates, everything goes up. Uh, and that that world seems like it's coming to an end. But lots, there's lots of people who aren't really who have no experience of anything else. So, does that pose any problems for you as a as a or any opportunities as well for you as, as someone investing in trust? I think I think it's an opportunity um, because we we we've worked in these sorts of environments in in the past, and as, as you say. Somebody could be quite senior now, and, and, and until recently, had barely seen an interest rate rise, let alone a, a market crash. Um, so there's a lot of inexperienced investors. I think that's less of a problem having had the, the COVID crash because you know they've now experienced a sell-off, and sell-offs happen for all sorts of different reasons. So 1987, for example, was just exuberant markets losing all they'd gained and actually ending up. Um, slightly up on the air, but it's still seen as the um, Black Monday and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a great crash. So they all happen for very different reasons, and the next crash will happen for um, a different set of reasons. So I think the inexperience of investors is less of an issue than it was pre-COVID. I mean, the market scenario um, of just generally going slightly sideways to lower um, for an extended period of time um, actually suits us because we're finding all sorts of interesting opportunities that are just found in nooks and crannies in, in, in our market. Um, because if the market's just going up 20% every year and, and we've managed to find all these mispricing opportunities, and although we'll have taken a lot less risk um, in achieving the returns, we're probably not going to be vastly different from the market and therefore everyone will just say, so what? So in a slightly sideways to falling market, um, what we can achieve um, actually you know, looks quite good. So the, these the scenario on a relative basis anyway, is is ideal for us yeah so I mean, maybe c- could you elaborate a bit more on the that last point so mm-hmm. i think something that actually the last guest we had on we were discussing was um effectively whether if you look if you look at the past 10 years or so it's been very difficult for lots of managers to beat i don't know mm-hmm. the, the s&p 500 for example just because you've had 
what, what, what I mentioned before, so ultra low interest rates, lots of money in the system, lots of debt, and so on. Um, so do you think at least in the short term, or perhaps even longer term, there is more opportunity for active managers to outperform just because there won't be a sort of rising tide lifts all ships type of macro economy? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely the case. Although we, we, we've always been saying stock pickers market and and, and it has, hasn't it's really turned out to be that way. But um, no, if you look at the indices, particularly in the States, for example, X, you know, the, X, the, the very largest stocks, I mean, um, the, the graph looks very different now from, from one that includes the, 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 the mega tech stocks, which have been under pressure. So, and it's very been very difficult, you know, particularly in the US, and um, where there's sort of you know half a dozen stocks driving all the all all the the move. Um, it's very difficult to outperform in those conditions because you've got to have big bets on what's going up just to even um, stay stay with with the indices. So yes, I think we've moved on from that phase, and um, you know people who do traditional stock picking, finding interesting ideas, and doing it in the you know, and not relying on on different numbers on the Greek alphabet. Um, will 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 come to the fore, having had a very frustrating time for for, for some years now. And uh, I mean, to, to change tack a little bit, I think you one thing you touched on earlier was basically that you look for I suppose inefficiencies mm-hmm. in the invest, investment trust space. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about how you go about doing that? I mean, you invest in lots of different things, to my understanding. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is that, but is there a sort of overarching strategy or, or way of thinking about investments that you can apply to all these different funds? I think, say, so we're looking for mispricing. Um, we do seek to get enormous diversification, and you know, we'll have an enormous number of asset classes in there. That, that happens naturally, but that's something that that we seek because um, it it sort of you know reduces the, the the volatility of the of the performance. I suppose we talk to a lot of people, and we we you know. Um, we're generous, um, and so a lot of our, you know, for example, in the last few days, we've looked at uranium um, lending to pharmaceutical companies, um, aircraft leasing. You know, you're, you're looking at a lot of these interesting areas and, and trying to assess what the portfolio could be sold for. And the, the reason so many um, pricing companies um, have started being started developing now that the trust world is is, is a home for alternatives is that the net asset value that's published for an alternative is actually quite subjective. Unlike when um, the trust sector was populated largely by long-only equity funds, you know, the manager can run the Bloomberg and uh, you get a, um, uh, an NAV based on the closing prices of the, of, of, the, of the previous day, and that's a fair call for what the portfolio is worth. Um, with with a, an alternative, either it's stale or the methodology doesn't really work as well as it did when the fund was launched, you, you can get a situation where the, where the net asset value that's published is quite a long way away from what the value of the portfolio is. And a simple example of that would be would be forestry. A couple of years ago, we owned a trust called Thalamus Timber, and it was a big beneficiary of the um, banning of the felling of natural timber in China. Most of its assets were New Zealand, which was a great place to uh, to export to China from. But they only revalued the portfolio once a year because it's an expensive exercise and. I think, you know, from the top of my head, that the the NAV was around fifty p. The share price was around forty. Um, the sea change in in the timber market probably put the NAV up to about sixty five. Um, but the market still stuck, you know, because there'd been no change in the NAV. 
the market treated that NAV as verbatim and the shares still traded around 40p for, for some time after this sea change event. In the end, an Australian hedge fund made a hostile takeover for the for the for the trust and um, and probably got the assets very cheaply. I think 52p, I think it was at, at the back there. But all that happened there was the NAV had become stale, and the, the, and we're just looking at where that market is now. Um, and you know, there's a big divergence there. You know, the, the the value of that portfolio would have been a lot higher than the the stated NAV. Another more topical example. Um, Flats in Berlin. We we have a holding in a in a in a trust called Phoenix Spree. Um, it was always set up, I think, probably you know, some years ago now, as a as a rental landlord. And then meth- the methodology um, uses the rental value of the flats when it's publishing an NAV. But you know, Berlin is a highly regulated market, and there's a, that's created a bit of a barbell valuation in the two identical flats, one with a tenant one sold into the private market will have dramatically different valuations. And the trust is going through a process of slowly splitting up a lot of its apartment blocks and selling them off as individual apartments. Of course, the price to get for that will be vastly higher um, than the, the, the valuations of those flats that's going into the NAV. And that's just a case of the methodology has become stale. It made perfect sense in 2005 for that to be the methodology, but the world has changed, the methodology is still the same. And therefore, it's always going to produce an NAV, which is well below um, what you could actually sell that portfolio for. So those are the sorts of things you're looking at. There always has to be a catalyst as well, you know, because you can you can buy into something that's on a on a 30% discount. Um, but if there's no catalyst, then it's going to stay on a 30% discount. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to see what could change that. In the case of Phoenix, it's just a slow liquidation of the portfolio at a much higher rate than or a much higher valuation than the, than, than the book value. I mean, I actually think that most people listening would probably expect at the moment for it to be the reverse of what we're talking about, where perhaps the valuation hasn't reflected an increase in, say, the discount rate, and uh, mm. thus maybe it, the the NAV should be lower than it actually is. Is that? Do you think is there, is there anything like that happening at yeah, the moment as well? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you if you were to look at property at the moment, um, they're trading on very steep discounts. Um, you know, in in in, in Phoenix free trades on an enormous discount of over forty percent, and that to a certain extent is factoring in that the NAVs are going to fall. But of course, in in the investment trust world, um, the falls have already happened, and they've probably overdone it. Um, so the yeah. NAVs are going to come down, but probably nothing like as far as some of the share prices have, have come down, and and that's because there's uncertainty about um, what the cost of capital is going to be. You know, we're going through a change in, in, the, in the environment and, and we're going to have higher interest rates. Um, quite often when there's uncertainty, share prices just keep falling and falling and, 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 and tend to overdo it because until people can actually quantify what the damage is and it's still uncertain, um, you know, they, they, haven't, they can't get their calculators out and work out what the true value is. And therefore, in the absence of the certainty of bad news, prices fall. So that's, that's a... A good area where yes the navs are going to fall but the share prices have fallen dramatically more another area is private equity where we'll be getting you know some um valuations coming through which are likely you know given interest given debt is, is is central to um the structuring of a lot of those deals um the second hand value of a lot of those transactions um, must be lower than, than, than the ones that they're publishing at the moment. But again, you know, until recently, they were trading out on, on 40% discounts in, in, in some cases. So the damage is, um, you know, the, the damage um, in the falling nav is, is not as high as the, the falling share price. So, yes, uh, you know, um, 
it's all a moving target, but certainly in those two sectors, for example, yeah. we would expect um, the next couple of NAVs to be published and the next couple of quarterly NAVs to be steadily downwards. Yeah. So do you think in that, in that case, there's, um, it's almost like the, the current discount is not necessarily wrong, but it could act almost like a cushion against yeah. Yeah. further drops? So if, as you say, NAVs come down, it's, it's basically already priced in mm. to some extent? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that 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 that's that's right. I mean, the 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 the, the, the you know the property sector you know has priced in you know very very steep falls, which which you know may or may not happen. It depends. I mean, the 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 area that's vulnerable there is some of the you know things like the big boxes that became perhaps overvalued, and and therefore the cost of their debt will be higher than than the yield on the underlying portfolio. So obviously those have have, have got an issue. Um, Phoenix Brie as an example, well, the, the, the portfolio or the underlying yield is probably, you know, just shy of 3%, but, you know, German bunds of the yield has dropped back to 2 So at least there's a positive carry there. Mm. I mean, that, that you, that's another point that I think investors are increasingly having to be aware of, in the public, which they haven't had to be for quite a while, mm. which is if you're, um, I mean, if you're a trust and you're using gearing or, or whatever it might be, you finally really have to factor in the cost of, of debt so is that something that you've also had to sort of change change the way you look at things always looked at it you know including that we 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 like to build a portfolio that's not got a lot of debt in it and if you lived a few through a few crashes you can see that when you've got debt (laughs) and capital rather quicker than they do when you don't have debt i mean but obviously we have exposure to property and private equity where debt comes with it but um there are certain areas and certain structures that uh, you know that are that are quite geared that that we would avoid. Okay, and maybe, maybe to go back to a slightly different area. I mean, I think most of what we've just talked about now is is really focusing on alternatives. Yeah. Um, but if you if if you were do, if you were looking at say a just classic long equity, doesn't matter where it is. You know, it could be a country specialist or it could be global. Are there any other, you know, I mean, at the moment, are there any things that are happening which would create the sort of inefficiencies that you're talking about? Just maybe just pure pessimism or something like that? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, for example, the um, the Vietnamese market has been extremely weak um, and, and, you know, the trust exposed to that it, are on quite high discounts. Um, I mean, there is a legacy there. I mean, Vietnam, briefly, in around 2005, was one of the most fashionable investment destinations on the planet uh, and raised, and the number of closed-ended funds that launched raised insane amounts of money. So, you know, the special situation element, and we would like there to be a special situations element in, in, in things we buy, is that um, there's a massive oversupply situation because, you know, the legacy of that, those insane amounts of money that were raised um, all those years ago um, you know, has led to the two trusts that we own, for example, being FTSE 250 constituents in their own right, absolute dwarfs demand for Vietnamese assets. So there's more stock around than, than there's demand, and therefore that's why you have you know a wide discount because the share price where buyers meet sellers is is a long way below the the value of the portfolio. Um, the catalyst there is that the boards of both of those trusts recognise the oversupply situation and are buying back quite a lot of stock for cancellation and we think that you know vietnam being a beneficiary of the sort of covid lockdowns and the need for the um, multinationals to diversify their manufacturing their supply chains away from china 
I mean, they, they're hardwired in, so they can't move away from China. But new capital investments are are heading to places like India and, and Vietnam. So we've got a very positive macro view, despite the fact that it's been one of the weakest markets um, this year. Um, so there's a sort of top-down view, but also there's a special situation view that, you know, as that top-down view gets greater acceptance, there'll be more demand. And this number of shares in the issue is steadily being reduced, and therefore the demand and supply will reach equilibrium at some point, maybe in three months or maybe in two years' time. And at that point, they'll no longer be trading on 20 discounts, they might be trading on a two discount. So we do have long-only um, equity situations in the, in the portfolio, but it's it's more difficult for there to be um, you know, a mispricing opportunity if they're plain vanilla. Um, the ones you know that we get involved in might be single country, you know, Georgia Cat, which is an example, which trades on about a 60 discount, despite the fact Georgia being, you know, in a boom condition. Um, it's it's, it's uh, border with Russia, I think, is the, is the main problem. So the perception is very, very poor. Um, and that's why it trades on, on, on such a deep discount. But also the, the, the net asset value, the value of the portfolio has been steadily rising and people aren't really looking at it because it's not, not, not something that people um, very often would advise um, their investors to buy a single a single country fund in Eastern Europe with a border on Russia that had a war with Russia in 2008. Um, you know, sentiment can, can you know, lead to some extreme discounts around. Okay, maybe to go back to the beginning, you talked a bit about how trusts have changed over the years and, and um, how they have this long history and so on. You said you started working in the 1970s. I think a lot of people see parallels with the, with the 1970s today. Yeah. Um, first of all, would you say that's, that comparison is fair? And also, can you talk about what maybe investors should expect in this sort of environment? Um, I mean, no slump or no recession is is exactly the same, but there there, there are parallels with with, with the seventies, and and you know, the, the, I think the most important parallel was that um, uh, you know we we had the the barber boom, which was again you know um, spent government spending money they didn't have, pumping cash into the system, sending the markets higher, and then then eventually the markets crashing. I think we, we, we've had all that. Um, I think um, probably economics, hopefully, is, is, you know, is better understood by, by the current generation of politicians or the ones that may be in, in, in number 10 and number 11 now. Um, so I think what we will see, and this will be globally, as I said before, a, you know, steadily draining from of, of liquidity from the financial system to try and you know reduce these heroic amounts of money that have, that, have, that have been borrowed and the amount of cash that's been pumped into the system. So the most likely scenario is just a very slow, because you can't do this quickly because the markets and the economies are, are, are fragile. So it's just that, that tide being against you in a, in a much, in, you know, in a relatively gentle way, but for an extended period of time. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look back when I first started at the end of the 70s, you know, we, they, we were coming towards the end of that. I mean, I think the markets were dead in 79 and 80, but then kicked into gear, I think, in about 1981. You know, people had given up on, on equities. Um, there had been, you know, a, a natural home for savings, but they, they'd performed extremely badly since the early 70s. So you've sort of had a lost decade that, um, yeah, the people had um, had given up. And therefore... You know, old-fashioned bear markets aren't like the um, the, the crashes and the and that we've seen, but they ten- tended to be just markets falling a little bit every day for years, um, and that's probably the scenario. And what and that's why I was suggesting you don't really want to be too close to indices, 
because then you just get everything. But of course, within that environment, there, there will be things like aircraft leasing um, that's, you know, that, that um, in its own microclimate is, 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 is actually quite bullish. Um, so, yes, so um, an extended period of dullness, really, um, which is, you know, probably not, not, not the message that uh, I, I, yeah, I'm <coughs> wishing to give. But if you're going back to the 70s and you just look at what happened during the 70s, that's you know that that's basically had a bit of excitement in uh, in in seventy four and then 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 everything asleep for five years. Okay, well, let me maybe, maybe for a final question: Are there any areas that you think? Um, I know I know you can't mention specific trusts or anything like that, but are there any sectors that you think moving forward may start to look already are looking attractive? Yeah, I think well we we've touched on some. I mean, I touched on aircraft leasing. I think is is is, is worth looking. Um, um, property probably as long as you're patient. In that um, the falls have probably overdone the falls that we're we're actually going to get. Similar in private equity as well. You know, trading on very very deep discounts. We will see falling nabs. Um, yeah, private equity uh, and some of the sort of debt funds um, have quite high charges and there is an opportunity um, at the moment because there is a number of the, the wealth management chains for example in their models um, can't have holdings that have got quite high charges because that increases the, the 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 level of charges they have to disclose in their own products now so private equity and some of the debt funds for example which traditionally have quite high costs are trading at very wide discounts um, because um, the, a certain proportion of their share measure needs to sell because they can't disclose fees of, 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 of that height. So some of these things are trading on sort of 35 discounts, even though they're performing really well and will continue to perform really well. So one of our themes is, is trust that have got high, high IOCFs, as we call it, or high level of charges, because people are selling us those shares for non-investment reasons. And we do love it when people sell us sell us um, their, 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 their investments um, when it's not an investment decision. It's purely that um, they want to reduce the, the fees they disclose on their own products. Great. Well, that's like a, a bit of a more upbeat uh, way to finish yeah. in your previous there's always, answer. So. There's, always things, there's always things you can make some money on. Um, you know, that's, uh, um, so that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of my go. Okay. Well, Nick, thanks very much for, for taking the time to speak to me today. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again at some point in the future. Brilliant. Much appreciated. You've been listening to Trust Issues by Kepler Trust Intelligence. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember to visit our website at trustintelligence.co.uk to keep up with all the latest research on investment trusts.